a student debt, a tax, and not a debt. What is the status of public service loan forgiveness for our physicians, nurses, and other health professionals? Should you refinance your student loans? Learn the answers to these questions and many more on this episode of the Talk To Me Doc podcast. Welcome to the Talk To Me Doc podcast, where it's all about communication among the entire healthcare team. Let's talk to each other more effectively so that we can truly help our patients. And now your host, Dr. Andrew Tisser. Hey guys, it's Andrew and welcome back to the Talk To Me Doc podcast. I'm so happy to have you here. If you've been here before, thanks so much. If this is your first time here, stay tuned because today, like on every episode, we have the best guests from all around healthcare talking about the healthcare worker experience, humanizing healthcare, and how we can improve it. Today, we have Travis Hornsby. He's a speaker and the founder of Student Loan Planner. After helping his physician wife navigate ridiculously complex student loan repayment decisions, to date, he's consulted on over $650 million in student debt personally, more than anyone else in the country. He is a chartered financial analyst and brings his background as a former bond trader trading billions of dollars. He brings that same intensity to analyzing the best repayment paths for graduate degree professionals with six figures of student debt. He's helped over 2,500 clients save over $120 million on their student loans, and he's been featured on U.S. News, Business Insider, Forbes, Huffington Post, Rolling Stone, Vice, Fox Business, ChooseFi, Pockets Money, and more. Well, I'm excited, so without further ado, let's bring Travis onto the show. Travis Hornsby, welcome to the Talk To Me Doc podcast. Thanks, Andrew. Well, Travis, um, I recorded a little bio about you that you provided, but uh, in your own words, could you tell the listeners who you are, what you do? Yeah, so I love making plans for people for their student debt to make sure that doesn't get in the way of the life they want to live. Uh, so I founded Student Loan Planner after kind of a life as a bond trader where I was you know, buying and selling um, you know, billions of dollars of bonds for one of the largest uh, investment companies out there. And it was interesting. It was really fascinating and I learned a lot, but it just wasn't kind of specifically for me. I just didn't feel like I was passionate about the, you know, the role that I had. So I thought, well, I, I want to help people in some way. And then I actually met my wife from, from med school, well, not in med school. She, she was in um, fellowship at that point. And you know, I was working at this corporate job and then I found out she had a lot of student loan debt. <laughs> and that's kind of how I got involved in this is basically she had a bunch of uh, student loan debt and I was trying to come up with a, a plan using my bond trader Excel modeling skills. And I figured it'd be real easy to do and it ended up being really complicated just because as your listeners probably know, there's all these different income-based plans, tax filing statuses, you can file different ways there. You can um, you know, get caps on your payments sometimes. Uh, and you can get public service loan forgiveness or you can refinance or you can even go for non-PSLF forgiveness. So there's just so many options that I thought, wow, this is a lot more complicated than I thought. So it gives a lot of stuff to work on, and it's uh, and it's and it's something different from from bond trading. Yeah, so I mean that's kind of how I got into it and, and why I enjoy it. I'm I'm really into the financial independence community, so I kind of uh, really like those concepts. You know, I tried to retire early at 25 and and was not successful. Um, <laughs> because my 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 father-in-law was basically like, get a job or I'm not going to come to the wedding. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, kind of, kind of motivated me to make this thing, uh, make this business work, you know? So how long have you been doing this now? 
About four years. Four years. Cool. So you really get it with the wife as a physician. You, you uh, understand the, the struggles we go through. Yeah. I mean, I would say not as well as she does, but you know, I, I understand the, the, the spousal uh, sort of impact, right? I mean, it's just medicine can be all consuming. You know, I see this with, with her all the time. It's just, you know, you, you know, you, you give it, give it all to the job because that's what it requires. And then it's like how much you have left in the tank for everything else. Right. Um, so, you know, even like her hobbies, like she likes playing piano, like likes jamming out to guitar sessions, singing and stuff. But like when you've given everything you've got to your patients at the office and you're really tired and exhausted and everything, how much energy do you have to do those things? So, I mean, it's definitely better than residency. So I'll encourage anybody out there who's going through that as a physician spouse uh, or physician, you know, I mean, life does get better. That's very true. But, you know, I think that my personal opinion is that long-term, if physicians are getting burned out, which we know is a problem, that you just want to put yourself eventually in a financial position where you could afford to do part-time and and have that be kind of a long-term approach to burnout versus just quitting the profession entirely like we're seeing a lot of people trying, you know, thinking about. Yeah, that's a fair point. I think just cutting back hours really helps people uh, in life in in general. Um, But uh, certainly the the monstrous student debt is the last thing people want to think about when they get home after, you know, 80 hours in the hospital all week. Yeah. I mean, that's very true. I mean, the the thing people need to realize about student loan debt is it's a tax. It's not really a debt. So if I, you know, if I told you that you have $200,000 of debt, then you have to pay $2,000 a month for 10 years. There's no flexibility at all. And if you do, I'm going to report it to your credit score. It's going to be really bad. You know, we can, we can maybe, you know, see some of your wages or something like that. That's, that's what student loan debt would be like if it was a debt. And, you know, it's really only a debt when you refinance it. Before the point where you refinance it, it's a tax. So for example, you know, you can pay it as 10% of your discretionary income. So if you have like a lot of federal student loan debt, then you're going to be paying 10% of your discretionary income. It, it can get more complicated than that because, you, you know, that means that you get a, a deduction. You know, you get to deduct a certain amount based on how big your family is. You might need to file taxes a certain way to exclude your spouse's income on that. But at its core, it's just 10% of your income, you know, basically. And, and it, when, it, when you consider it that way, well, say a pediatrician, you know, has got 400 grand of medical school debt. Well, she doesn't have 400,000 of medical school debt. She's got a 10% tax on her income. And, and then, you know, for public service loan forgiveness, it's forgiven tax-free after 10 years. So for people on that nonprofit government job route, it's pretty clear that student debt is a tax and it's something that you shouldn't be super worried about. But for, for people that are you know, in the private sector, you know, th- th- it's still actually a tax until you don't want it to be. And that's the really important idea is when you, when you don't want it to be a tax anymore, that's when you can go ahead and basically buy your way out of it being a tax by refinancing it. So, I mean, imagine if rich people had the ability to buy out a tax and not pay tax uh, by just paying, you know, $200,000 of student loans back or something like that, right? So, I mean, that's the kind of way you want to think about this because a tax doesn't really prevent you from doing something that you want to do. And a tax is not something that's like, you know, just this huge burden that's going to crush you with anxiety. Um, We know this because people still live in New York and California instead of everyone moving to Texas and Florida, right? 
Yeah, that's pretty interesting. I've never heard it referred to as a tax before, and I think that can change people's perceptions on it. That's uh, that's an interesting point. I like that. So let's talk about public service loan forgiveness for a second. You know the intricacies of it all. I think um, I think a lot of my listeners are very concerned that this program will somehow go away, or the you know the the status of of public service loan forgiveness. So can you comment on it? Yeah, so it's, it's not going anywhere, especially after this pandemic, right? I mean, like, what are you going to do? Tell, you know, have, have a bunch of headlines, you know, in an election year and, and even after that say, you know, doctors risk their life, you know, on the front lines. Instead of getting their loans forgiven, they're getting them, you know, a lim- you know forced to pay them back, right? Like, there's no way that there's going to be that headline. Come on, right? Like, so, so that would be my first point. Now, my second point is just like from a contractual perspective, you know, you have to look at your promissory note. Otherwise, you're just sort of gambling, right? You're just making things up or you're just kind of talking without like knowing what you agreed to. Like a promissory note is a contract that, you know, basically between you and the lender that defines the terms of your loan. And if you look at that promissory note, it specifically says public service loan forgiveness in there, right? So it's got it in the contract. And for that reason, the, the only people that have really sought to repeal it have been President Obama in 2015. But he basically wanted to cap it at no more than 57500 which is essentially the maximum you can take out for undergraduate. So basically what President Obama was saying back in the day you know, when he was releasing budgets near the end of his administration was that, hey, this PSLA program, the fact that it's forgiving mostly graduate school debt, that's not really what we intended. Like we want it to be for you know, firefighters, nurses, you know, first responders, like people, you know, police officers, firefighters, like people with $30,000, dollars of student loan debt. And the Democrats in his own party shut him down. And then you haven't seen it brought up by Democrats since then. In fact, every single proposal since 2015 among Democrats has been, let's grow this thing and expand it even more. And then Republicans have sought to repeal it, you know, presumably because, you know, fiscal discipline combined with like the fact that like, there's fewer Republican constituents out there, uh, you know, that would probably benefit from PSLF, right? Like it's probably like 60, 40 or 70, 30 Democrat Republican split on the people who benefit from it. So maybe, you know, you could argue that's part of it. Um, but Republicans have never sought to repeal it for people that are currently working towards it ever, you know? So Republicans have always sought to grandfather in the people that are currently working towards it because Republicans like contracts. They really like contracts and they do not want to be a party that, um, you know, tries to go back on what a contract says, which is why they've wanted to repeal it, but for people that aren't, aren't already working towards it. So, you know, that's like kind of what the, the political tea leaves are saying in terms of what's going to happen with PSLF in the future. You know, the part of the loan servicer part of things, it's just nothing but incompetence. Like FedLoan doesn't get paid, you know, a bunch of money by not getting you PSLF, right? They're, they're not like trying to prevent people from getting it. They're just not very competent with it. And that's because the program was designed in such a way that it was it was just really complicated early on. You know, I mean, we can get into all the details. To, I don't know how much our listeners will care about those technical details as to why that is. But basically, like the loans prior to 2010 were called FEL loans, FFEL. And, and a lot of those loans are owned by banks. And banks were, you know, looking at having to give up a lot of their interest income and have their loans forgiven, you know, and they were like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, if you're going to do this program, limit it to only loans the government owns and leave us out of it. So that's why the government made it so that only direct loans qualify for PSLF. And most of those loans weren't issued until after 2010. 
So you've got people graduating from you know, med school that took out direct loans. Those people would mostly be graduating after 2024. So anybody applying as a physician to PSLF before 2024, the only way that you're doing that is if you had a really, really hyper-aware medical school office that told you to consolidate your student loans prior to 2014. There's, there's some people out there for sure, but that's not a common thing. Like most medical schools were really had no clue about this until like 2015, you know? So that's kind of a why in a nutshell, like all the PS love stuff is just all messed up. It's like the rejection rate was 1%. Now it's up to two, uh, sorry, the acceptance rate was up to 1%. Now it's up to two or 3%, right? And I know that sounds really bad, but again, that's because all those people applying had the wrong kind of loans. So, you know, you're going to see that acceptance rate for PSLF continue to soar. You know, my guess is by like 2022, you'll see the, that acceptance rate for PSLF be like 10%. Uh, and then maybe by 2024, that acceptance rate will creep up to more like 50%. Well, that's encouraging. I, and my wife's in the, pro, in the program. She's an ac- academic doc. So, um, what, you know, what's your advice to people pursuing it? Just uh, read the rules and follow the plan. Well, you know, again, it's not it's not as simple as people think it is, right? Like if, if it was as simple as sign up for this plan every time and keep applying if you're in a not-for-profit job, then there would not be any use for a group like ours, right? It just wouldn't, it wouldn't be, you know, it wouldn't be something that would be worth spending money on, right? Because like you could just fill out the form and that's it. And that's that's all that's required, right? So I think that getting PSLF is like, I mean, it's not rocket science, like you can apply by just sending in the employer certification form uh, to Fed Loan Servicing and just, you know, seeing if they come back with you having qualifying payments, if, if you're on an income driven plan, like where, where most of the kind of money savings comes in is just knowing all the loopholes. So for example, you know, if somebody is in residency or fellowship, and they have a, you know, future income is going to be much higher than their loans, like the pay as you earn plan will allow you to cap the monthly payment instead of having it be just 10% of your income, it's 10% with a cap of the standard 10-year plan. So for example, you know, let's say a urologist is making $400,000, but has $200,000 of student loan debt. On the repay plan, that person's paying probably like 40 grand a year, a little under that, but like around there. And then, you know, on the pay-as-you-earn program, maybe that person's only paying like 20-something grand a year. So that can be a big difference, right? And then, you know, another example is, uh, tax filing status. If you're on the repay plan, you know that might be beneficial unless you're married, um, and then somebody's income is getting into the picture, which is causing your payment to be, you know, a few, a few thousand dollars more than it would be otherwise if you filed separately, right? You know, some other people. There's even more loopholes besides that too. So I'll give you another example. So uh, there's this program where you know the repay plan. Basically, if you file taxes any which way. The repay plan is always a proportional payment, which means that say, say Andrew, that you had some loans, but you were pursuing, you know, some other plan or something, or let's say that you were pursuing PSLF too. Let's say like you're both pursuing PSLF and you're thinking, oh, I'll just, I'll just fall joint. But let's say that your debt is way lower than hers, right? Mm-hmm. So what you can do is this repay plan gives you a proportional payment. So maybe, you know, instead of paying, you know, a couple thousand dollars a month, you're able to use that loophole and only pay a couple hundred dollars a month. And then you're also filing taxes and having her do pay as you're in filing separately, which saves her a few thousand a year. So you can easily, easily get into situations with using like some complex like tax filing stuff, where you can save maybe five to $10,000 per year on the payments. 
uh, for PSLF, you know? So there's, there's just a bunch of loopholes in that regard, right? Um, I would say like getting the basics right is important. So getting the basics right is just send in the employer's certification form, get your loans over to Fed Loan Servicing, send it in once a year, pay based on an income-driven plan, and, uh, and then, you know, work here 10 years, you know, cumulatively at a not-for-profit or government employer while making payments and certifying once a year, and it'll work out fine. Yeah, that's fair. I, I think, yeah, without getting into the weeds, I think that's, that's great advice. The, you know, I, there's been some talk about perhaps recertifying twice a year just because of a general distrust of Fed loans. Do you think that's necessary or? It's not necessary, but it's, but it's good if you have anxiety problems, you know? <laughs> I mean, so at the end of the day too, I mean, like, so here's one thing that we find. So we do a lot of like financial independence kind of research around student loans. You know, that's, that's also something that we like to talk about uh, during doing consults for people. So it's like one thing we find is if you have a bad savings rate, then PSLF is the end all be all. Because what we find is your retirement date can swing as like as much as five or seven years earlier or later, depending on whether or not you're getting PSLF if your savings rate is like 10, 15%. And the reason is just because PSLF becomes such a huge part of your financial plan because you're not saving as much money as you probably should. And then likewise, what we find is people that long-term live one sort of economic class below where they are, are the ones that PSLF will often just have basically a one-year swing on their retirement date. In other words, the more money you save, the less important PSLF becomes in, in your overall financial picture, which is, which is a really important point because a lot of the people that I see posting about PSLF having such great anxiety, like I had this conversation with a um, very high-earning specialty a uh, couple like like a like a I think orthopedic surgeon and like um you know something some other specialty that was hiring you know cardiology urology something like that and um and I showed them how just increasing their savings rate ten percent was going to have about a a five times bigger impact than just you know getting PSLF on this massive amount of debt that they had and all their energies all their mental energies were spent on getting PSLF instead of focusing on how do they get 5,000 a month being contributed into, you know, index funds at Vanguard or something, you know? And, um, and I think, I think it's just real important to have perspective. Like that's, that's something that helps you avoid anxiety is, you know, recertifying twice a year. Maybe I would do it in the first year or two, just to kind of give yourself peace of mind. Maybe you do it in the first year or two of a new job just to kind of give yourself peace of mind that the new job qualifies. But, uh, but don't go overkill, right? Like I tell people, think about this like taxes. Like once you have the right plan, then you think about it once a year and you just send in all the paperwork and that's all. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. How about the other side of the coin, the, the private refinancing people? Um, I know there's a lot of talk about the implications of refinancing um, and people should really really be sure that they won't qualify for PSLF if they go that route. I, I personally refinanced in residency, but I knew for a fact that I would never be working at a non-for-profit or government agency. So it made sense for me, but uh, can you comment on that a little bit? Well, yeah, I mean, so, so first I would say like, that's a good example of, of how this stuff can get complicated. So, I mean, maybe, maybe that's the right decision about refinancing, but like in your case, like if you have a spouse that's going for PSLF and you're not, like sometimes 
your loans can be useful as an absorption tool of payments. So it really depends on what the numbers are. But a lot of times, for example, you know, let's say that you have 30, 40% of the debt, you know, your loans can absorb 30 or 40% of the overall required payment on, on an income driven, an income driven plan, uh, which can often mean that you're going to get more forgiven on the spouse's loans that are eligible for PSLF than the interest savings that you receive if you're with the uh, federal government. Uh, sorry, if you're with a private lender, right? So that, that, that's, that's, that's an example of how this stuff can get, you know, complicated. You know, in terms of refinancing overall, I mean, consider what's going on right now. Right now, people who refinance to private lenders are still paying their interest. And, and at best, they're getting three months worth of forbearance on their federal loans, sorry, the private loans. Um, and then people that have federal loans are getting 0% interest right now, right? So I think that's pretty fascinating when you say, like, I mean, you know, in, in terms of, you know, federal student loans have a lot more protections than private loans. And long-term, yes, it makes sense for a lot of people to, refi- to refinance. I'm not saying it doesn't. I'm just saying that, you know, probably the right time to do that is when you are earning more than what you have in student loan debt and you have uh, a private sector job with a good emergency fund, you know, then it's probably okay to give that, give that safety of the federal government up for, you know, a lower interest rate so you can start paying it down faster. But, uh, but I'm, I'm not as, as gung-ho about refinancing as a lot of people are. Yeah, that's definitely a good point. I know, um, the, I recently refinanced again because given all the, the Corona situation, my previous uh, company that I had refinanced with did not have a death benefit. Um, so, uh, you know, if I'm, I'm an emergency physician and I have a likelihood of dying from this thing, and then uh, I, that debt would not be discharged on death was pretty scary to me. So I refinanced again with a company that did. Uh, so that's you know example of one of the one of the federal protections that you're giving up. Well, even in that case too, you, you have to read the fine print. But a lot of times, student loans forgiven and discharged via death um, discharge for private student loans can actually be assessed as tax taxable income against your estate. So I mean that's that's something else to consider for private loan refinancing. Yeah, definitely. I, the the one I went with has uh, the, well, do not send a 1099 to your estate, thankfully. But um, yeah, that's uh, that's something people really don't think about. But I think uh, has been brought to light a little bit more given the recent current events. Yeah, I mean, I think that the good news is you know you can save on a two hundred thousand dollars student loan balance if you're cutting your interest from you know six or seven to four. Uh, you know, that's saving you know four or five thousand bucks a year in interest, which is pretty pretty meaningful. And you know extra life insurance. Um, you know, like I got a, like a, you know, large policy for maybe a thousand dollars a year, uh, like a very large policy, you know, you can get, you know, a, a million or $2 million policy for probably like, you know, a few couple hundred dollars a year, something like that. Um, a few hundred dollars a year. So that's, that's really cheap to protect against that risk for something you should probably have anyway that would more than cover your student loans if something didn't go right, right? If you didn't read the five brand correctly or something like that, right? So, I mean, as long as you have good term and disability insurance, I think that that's kind of the key part for physicians because, you know, I mean, it's pretty fascinating what's going on right now, right? Because we did a, we did a survey and we found that, um, you know, back in, in mid-March, like 91% of physicians didn't have an income change. 
And now only 78% of physicians don't have an income change. This is like people on our, on our, um, you know, that read our website, not just physicians overall. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, what's, what's fascinating is physicians incomes have always been assumed to be rock solid. And now that we're seeing cracks all over the place in that, right. People I would have thought would have never had job security issues or having job security issues. Um, you know, not as bad as other fields. Like, so for example, only 1% of physicians are out of a job right now. And then 56% of dentists are out of a job right now. So, you know, physicians are still in better shape, but, um, but I think it's just so important to get to this point where you're financially independent so that you do have some sort of, some sort of bargaining power or control over your own schedule in life, you know, cause physicians have kind of shown that, you know, they'll sacrifice themselves and do anything it takes to, to, take care of patients, but then hospital systems are, I mean, they're all about the bottom line, right? I mean, um, I think that in the latest bailout bill, I think they get $75 billion yet, you know, every academic medical center that I know of is talking about how do we cut, you know, physician attending incomes by 10 to 30% to, to close this, you know, so-called budget loophole or budget gap that they need. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I mean, that's maybe a little bit different topic, but I'm, I'm just very skeptical of these, uh, large hospital systems just trying to profit maximize and just basically being, you know, very lucrative for profit businesses and run like they are. <laughs> oh yeah. And I, I think more than ever, this, uh, this has been shown given the crisis that, that I think that's just increasing the burnout and dissatisfaction in docs because they're seeing, you know, they're seeing their hospital systems cut their salaries while they're getting bailed out. And again, yeah, that's a different discussion, but, um, that's that's how the the docs are trapped and and just look at some of the stories coming out across the country about doctors who are speaking out and getting fired you got to think about all the people that will not risk speaking out against terrible conditions because they have half a million dollars of debt and they need their job um yeah i mean the, the only thing i'd say with that is you know i mean i think that's hard to say like yeah in certain places you would get fired i mean you might have to move states to get another job right but but when this crisis is over, you know, I mean, the flip side of things is, is as hospitals are still going to have a lot of money to spend and hire a lot of people again, you know? And so it's kind of like, if you have enough money to last, like how, how, what is the longest that this virus can last in terms of destroying our economy? You know, maybe two years. I mean, people have kind of talked about a vaccine, you know, maybe, maybe we have one available in, you know, 18 months or something. Right. So it's like, as long as you get to some level of financial security, you don't need to be have 25 times your annual expenses in the bank or in a portfolio, right? All you need is to have enough financial security, say, a, you, know, a, you know, a few multiples of what you earn, maybe just two times what you earn, you know, sitting in total investments and assets before you're like, well, you know what, like, maybe I can speak up without fear that I'm going to have to go, you know, get in the bread line as soon as they, I get fired <laughs> from this. You know what I mean? Um, I think physicians have a lot more power, a lot more power than they think they do. And, and I think that just the, the nature of medicine and the hospital system and stuff like that just kind of scares people, right? You know, it just gets kind of like the movie Office Space, if you've seen that one, right? Mm-hmm. Where, you know, he's just sort of doing whatever the boss tells him and, and he's abused and not respected and just is so sad with his life. And then he just starts not caring and just like doing it on his own kind of looking out for himself basically. And then suddenly they're like, Oh my gosh, this guy's going places. He's going to upper management. He's got upper management written all over him, you know? And, um, I, I mean, 
you know, I know people in medicine, like my wife always is like, well, that's different. That doesn't apply to medicine. You, you don't know anything. I'm like, well, <laughs> but I know people like, you know, physician on fire, white good investor, like those guys who, you know, have des- effectively designed their own lifestyle and designed their own jobs. Right. I mean, physician on fire, walking away from medicine completely. And then in the final few years of his life, he, or his career life, he, um, you know, basically just said, Hey, I'm, I'm going to work these hours. And if you don't like it, then I'm quitting. I mean, that's pretty powerful. And, and if you're producing a certain amount of revenue for an organization, they basically are always going to say yes. You know, so I think that that's really critical to just, you know, get to that next point, get to some sort of mile marker. Like Pete, you're running a marathon, not a sprint. And how do you run a marathon? You pick, you know, some sort of fixed marker in front of you, maybe a mile marker or like a, a landmark. And you say, if I can only get to this level, right? So a lot of people that are burdened by student loan debt, the reason they're burdened is because their net worth is very negative. So your first mile marker is maybe, how do I get to a positive net worth? Maybe that takes a really long time. But if your student loan debt is a tax, not a debt, well, then it's, it's not even something that you have to worry about. You know, it's, it's some, again, federal debt is owned by the government. The government is not interested in making a profit on this. But, you know, they're just incompetent on this. Yeah, that's that's a fair point. I mean, I think the the first hurdle, I, I would argue that the first hurdle for docs is getting to uh, neutral, getting a zero net worth and not getting a positive, but um, which could take many years. But good points all, all all around. Yeah, I think that you you just want to start off with baby steps. Get an emergency fund. Have a car that's paid off. You know, don't buy a house that's more than double your household income. You know, try to avoid the unforced errors, you know, the really big unforced errors that cost people tons of money. And uh, that's going to have more impact on your life long term than even if the some, you know, student loan, you know, kind of fairy came in and just wiped, wiped it all away with a magic wand. Right. I mean, even if that happened long term, if your savings rate investing levels are not high, it's not going to matter. I mean, yeah, it'll it'll make you feel really good, but it'll be kind of like a sugar high. Like you'll feel fantastic for a year, maybe, and then kind of like when you buy a new car, you know, the new car smell lasts for a while, and then it kind of fades, and then you're not necessarily any happier than you were before. So that's a word of caution too to people who are so focused on paying off their student loans is all they think about. When you get to no student loans, you're going to be left with an empty feeling if you're not trying to build a life for yourself in spite of that. And you have to build that life right now and not wait till later to do that. Otherwise, like I said, you're going to be left with this empty feeling when student loans are gone and you're not going to know what to do next. Yeah, I love that, actually. I think there's so much focus on, on attacking these student loans, which may not necessarily be the best financial decision, um, depending on where you're at. I mean, if, if you have refinanced and, and you're four or sub 4%, then pouring all your money into, into the student loan balance may be, may be the wrong decision. Right. And, um, you know, this might be kind of interesting for people to know, but uh, what, what percentile would you say that somebody falls in if they're making $150,000 in the United States as an individual in terms of like what percentile of the income distribution are they in? What would you guess? Hmm. Uh, that's a good question. I, I don't know. Top 10%. So it's, it's top 6%. Hmm. So if you're, you know, 
if you're making more than 150,000, which virtually every physician is now there's a couple, you know, pediatric specialties, you know, got to give you all love, right. Uh, that, that get paid less than that in academic institutions. Um, in some, you know, in some cases, right. But, but most physicians are making almost all physicians, attending physicians are making more than that. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, by definition, as an attending physician, you're in the top 5% income earners in the United States. And when you compare yourself, you're going to compare yourself to your colleagues. Because why would I compare myself to the person who is a, you know, working class construction industry person that I went to middle school with? That doesn't make sense, right? In your mind. But you have to realize like, you know, there's this relative standard that you've reached as a physician that puts you in the top of the first world. So think about that, right? Think about your your income distribution in America being in the top 5%. And now think about the distribution of like your average person in America being in the top 5% of the world, right? So you're in the top 5% of the top 5%. And I understand that you have like listening, the listeners out there, I understand that you have problems like financially. I understand your stress. I understand it's it's a lot, right? And you're burdened. And... What I'm saying is, is with that level of income, the only thing holding you back is creativity to live the life you want to live, right? If you wanted to do part-time right out of the gate as an attending, you could do that. You would just need a plan. Otherwise, you're just going to just say random things and it's just not going to be impactful and you're not going to know kind of how to approach things, right? So what I'm saying is, is there's tons of hope and there's tons of optimism, right? I think that the anybody could do medicine long term if you could reduce the hours. I think that's kind of the the core thing is like people feel like, well, I have to earn more money or I have to pay off my loans or I have to support my family or we have to make this mortgage payment. So I'm going to work 50 hours a week or 60 hours a week because I'm paid in RVUs. They don't get paid as much money if I don't produce this much, right? And And that's just not a way to live life, especially when you're already in the top you know, 5% of the top 5%, you've already won the game. So, you know, just that was just kind of a thought that I've, I've had recently doing some research on income distribution. Oh, that's really interesting. And, and I think powerful as a message. And some people also don't think about, you know, if you do drop down hours, you may not be taking as much of a hit because you may be dropping your tax bracket. So, um, there's all, there's just so much there's so much that can be done as far as designing a life you want as a physician and I think people just get into this mindset of feeling trapped uh, by a lot of external factors so thank you for all that I think we're running out of a little bit of time here so I uh, I want to just transition the show to get to know you a little bit better um, so Travis do you uh, do you have a book recommendation for the listeners it's a little not financial related, but uh, the Great Influenza by John Barry. So it's talking about the. It's basically a, the probably the most comprehensive um, historical kind of account of the pandemic of nineteen eighteen. So with all the craziness going on in the world right now with coronavirus, I thought that was a, a really interesting read. Maybe as a as a financial book, you know, probably probably something like the Elements of Investing by Burton Malkiel, or um, Maybe, oh boy. I mean, I, rather than books, I tend to recommend blogs because I mean, that's kind of like the, the books of the, of the 90s or something, right? It's, it's telling somebody, <laughs> go, read a, go read a blog. So 
I mean, I think, you know, Mr. Money Mustache, um, you know, our site, studentloanplanner.com for just student loan related stuff, you know, Physician on Fire, White Coat Investor, choosefi.com. There's a couple options. Cool. Great. And uh, what do you like to do for fun? Great question. Uh, sit at home and watch Netflix because that's the <laughs> only thing that we're allowed to do. Um, I like to go to the... Uh, I like to go to the zoo and uh, the botanical gardens of Missouri and St. Louis and uh, where, where I live. So I, I get, I get really calm walking around, looking at, looking at animals, looking at flowers and things like that. So, um, I mean, I'm kind of like a, I guess a wannabe botanist zoologist, <laughs> I guess. And, uh, and I like camping and, uh, and, uh, and, and dancing with my wife. Well, going to the zoo is, uh, I think you win for most unique answer to what you like to do for fun. <laughs> yeah, I'm a little weird. <laughs> no, that's awesome. All right. Well, if uh, if people either uh, like your message or want to learn more about you or are interested in uh, doing a consultation with you, how can they find you? Go to studentloanplanner.com and then you can go to studentloanplanner.com slash help if you're interested in booking a consult with one of the members of our team or myself. And um, it's just, you know, we've, we've advised close to a billion dollars of student loan debt now. Um, I'm excited to say we're the top rated company in the student loan industry as well. Pretty close to a five-star rating for like four or 500 reviews. So we really know what we're talking about and, and we can really get you a professional opinion, if nothing else, just a second look at making sure that you're not, you know, in line to make any big mistakes on something that's basically a, a, the mortgage on a house, right? So it just depends on if that makes sense to, to somebody to get a professional opinion for uh, the price of a doctor visit, basically. Um, and if it does, we'd love to help you. And, uh, and, you know, we have a lot of free resources like our student loan planner podcast and our blog. If you're, if you're, you know, if you can't afford that. Awesome. Well, I think that'll be a great resource to the listeners. So uh, it's been fun. Thank you again uh, for agreeing to come on the show, Travis. Um, I definitely learned a few things and I, I pride myself on being pretty knowledgeable in these matters. So uh, thank you for that. And um, I think uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks, Andrew. What an interesting show that was with Travis Hornsby. He really knows his stuff. I thought it was pretty interesting how Travis shares his story from going from bonds trader to student loan planner. He states that given the current state of medicine, his recommendation is to get into a good financial position so that you can work less. He repeatedly talks about how student debt is a tax and not a debt and it only becomes a debt if it is refinanced. He discusses why he feels public service loan forgiveness is not risky for the current iteration of borrowers. He discusses the importance of running calculations based on tax filing scenarios. Travis also talks about the protections that federal loans provide, and he thinks that physicians have a lot more power than they think. Well, that's all I have for today, guys. Thank you again so much for listening. Please remember to give me a honest rating and review in Apple Podcasts because it really helps get this show out there. Additionally, the other thing I would like you to do after listening is visit my website at andrewtisserdo.com, Andrew, T-I-S-S-E-R-D-O.com, and let me know what you think. Well, until next time, guys, keep talking. 
All opinions expressed by the guests in this episode are solely the guests' opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Andrew Tisser Dio, TalkToMe.LC, or any affiliates thereof. The guests' opinions are based upon information he or she considers reliable, but Andrew Tisser Dio, TalkToMe.LC, nor any affiliates thereof warrant its completeness or accuracy. The guest, Andrew Tisser Dio, TalkToMe.LC, or any affiliates thereof are not under any obligation to update or correct any information provided in this episode. The guest statements and opinions are subject to change without notice.